if you had to strip everything else away in terms of the utility of helping people change bad habits, it would be I would I would keep curiosity as the last thing. One thing we've been studying and something I've learned in my after looking at my own habits was there's a simplicity and a, I would say even a beautiful simplicity in terms of how our minds work and how they learn. Um, where you need a couple of components, you know, some have described it as like you need a trigger, a behavior, and a result uh, or a reward in mm-hmm. brain terms. And when you understand that piece, curiosity actually fits in pretty nicely with it. But until until that's understood, it's it, you know the mind's kind of a black box. Choose to be curious is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but. Mostly, it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come. Choose to be curious with us. Really, what this show is about is my conviction that we should all just choose curiosity as often as we can in work and life. To be curious, to wonder internally in our own heads or by asking questions aloud, What don't I know here? What more might I learn to stop and pay attention to notice things? This all got started when I decided I was curious about curiosity. I had seen a little of what curiosity could offer in a large, complex, national nonprofit organization, and I figured there was more to it. And I thought it would be fun to share that exploration with others. And so the idea of a radio show was born. It was only as I began to build out my concept and try to figure out what I'd actually do with this idea that I kept coming back to this refrain that in the face of whatever, whenever people had a choice about how they might react, I wanted them to choose to be curious. And so I had a title. But it was a title that didn't always make sense to a lot of people. And most of the guests I've invited on the show would say they'd never really thought about curiosity, let alone choosing it. Not so with today's guest. He's deep into the curiosity camp. Dr. Judson Brewer is a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery, combining over 20 years of experience with mindfulness training with his scientific research in the field. You may know him as I first encountered him by his TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit the fourth most viewed talk of 2016 with 9 million plus views and counting. It was that talk and its focus on being curiously aware that caught and has kept my attention. I think you'll see why. A psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for addictions, he's published numerous peer review articles and book chapters, trained U.S. Olympic coaches, and gone on to develop and test novel mindfulness programs for habit change including both in-person and app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. He's also studied the underlying neural mechanisms for mindfulness using standard and real-time fMRI and EEG network feedback, all of which make my little science nerd heart go pitter-pat. And he founded Claritas Mind Scientists to move his discoveries of clinical evidence behind mindfulness for eating, smoking, and other behavior changes into the hands of consumers. Finally, he's the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits, my copy of which is now heavily dog-eared and annotated. So welcome, Judd. (laughs) Thanks for having me. What a wonderful introduction. Well, I have 
imagined this conversation for a long time. So I was very excited when you were so graciously receptive. So let's start. How do you define curiosity? Let's start right at the heart of things. (laughs) I, I love that question because we can have these intellectual curiosities uh, that you know that drive us to learn more about something. But I really uh, take an even a, a slightly nuanced stance around it, it. It's very experientially like we're just naturally drawn into something, and that experiential quality of curiosity is really hard to put words onto. It's really this, you know, this this joy, this um, <laughs> this this feeling of, oh, wow, what is this? And how do you put words on that? I don't know. I mean, it might be helpful to kind of frame what it isn't or or aspects of curiosity in particular that def- that separate out like the intellectual versus the experiential, you know, because if there's this drive, and so I've seen definitions of curiosity where it's like this drive to know more, mm-hmm. but I see drive more along the addiction spectrum. Maybe that's just my viewpoint. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. And and that drive, that forced quality of I have to know, is not doesn't really get at the essence of curiosity, which is really more of an open, um, you know, curious framework of oh, as compared to I have to know. Yeah, yeah. So you don't get caught up, do you, in sort of the the theory of is it a state? Is it a trait? Is it a drive? Um, you almost take it more at face value, it seems. Yes, and actually getting caught up is the opposite of curiosity itself, yeah. so it kind of is counterproductive. <laughs> yeah, interesting, interesting. So, so but, but you study people who do get caught up in things, um, and, and you've found a way to bring curiosity into that. So, so describe that professional path. I mean, how did you get interested in curiosity as a, as a physician, as a clinician, as a researcher? You know, I didn't go in thinking, like, I, I want to study or I want to understand curiosity. It came out of my own, actually, I was suffering. I was having trouble sleeping when I started medical school. And at that time, I didn't know much about how my mind worked, let alone my brain. And, you know, in medical school, I was going to learn about how my brain worked. But I didn't really get a lot of education about how my mind worked. Uh-huh. Uh, so I started meditating, actually, the first day of medical school. And um, used that as an opportunity to start understanding really how my mind worked. And I think I was maybe maybe I have a natural curiosity about how things work. It's kind of what led me to become a researcher and become a physician as well. Uh, but there's something about really not having a clue about how my mind worked that was intriguing, uh, especially because I kept, seemed to be tripping myself up all the time. So I started, you know, I started learning to meditate. I started learning uh, what, you know, the theories behind and the concepts behind mindfulness. And, um, you know, I would say about 20 years later now, I can say that I had no idea that it was all going to come down to curiosity. But I can pretty definitively say that, you know, if, if you had to strip everything else away, uh, in terms of the utility of helping people change bad habits, it would be, I would... I would keep curiosity as the last thing. Um, and it and it kind of starts with, you know, one thing we've been studying and something I'd learned in my after looking at my own habits was there's a simplicity and a, I would say even a beautiful simplicity in terms of how our minds work and how they learn, um, where you need a couple of components. You know, some have described it as like you need a trigger, a behavior, and a result. 
uh, or a reward in mm-hmm. brain terms. And when you understand that piece, uh, curiosity actually fits in pretty nicely with it. But until until that's understood, it's it, you know the mind's kind of a black box. Mm. So you, you've had this really rich intersection then of your spiritual practice and your scientific research. Was that an intentional uh, kind of dual track, or did no, it just no. evolve? I was a complete accidental tourist there. Uh, you know, I was studying molecular biology for my PhD. Was, uh, my PhD was in immunology. I was interested in why we get sick when we're stressed out. That was kind of my primary question. And but I was taking a very molecular biology approach, where I was, you know, we were knocking out specific genes and specific cell types to see what would happen when you stressed mice out. And um, that that interest kind of broadened to, you know, well. How does this actually apply to humans? And uh, probably after about eight years of doing mindfulness practice myself, I decided to shift gears from doing molecular biology work to actually studying mindfulness and meditation because I was finding that 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 was that was really you know it was very helpful for me, and it was even kind of tripping into the, some of the same language that my patients who were addicted to various substances were were talking about. I love this idea, kind of carrying the immunology forward, that the curiosity could be an inoculation. Yes, I love that. <laughs> May we all be infected yeah, with curiosity. Yeah, really, really. <laughs> I like that a lot. And you've, you've actually written that science and mindfulness mutually inform one another. Tell, us, tell me more about that. Well, I think mind, mindfulness is really a science of the mind, if you think about it from that perspective. Mindfulness is about understanding how our minds work. And if you look at the reward-based learning system, you know, those triggers, those behaviors, and those rewards, uh, mindfulness actually fits pretty well, pretty nicely into that. Mm-hmm. And curiosity is a real key aspect. It's it's actually, I could, I've been able to trace the origins of that all the way back to some of the early Buddhist teachings where they talk about these factors of awakening you know, and there are only seven of them, and one can roughly be translated as curiosity. So that that's an interesting piece in itself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Curiosity, factor of awakening. That's that's worth exploring. Interesting. Well, and you have you had two things that um, that you describe in in some detail in the craving mind, which I really enjoyed reading. And one of them is rain. And the other is these brain images you've done on the posterior cingulate cortex. Would you describe both of those? I thought these were fascinating. That was like all I could do to not like show open to the pages of these brain charts all weekend and kind of show it to people like, look at this, look at this. This is amazing. <laughs> well, the so I'm happy to, to unpack both of those. I'll give a little bit of background on those. The RAIN exercise is a, is a mindfulness practice that's used to help people uh, step out of their old habit loops. And you can think of it as, you know, let's use a concrete example, whether, I don't know, cigarettes or cupcakes or even anxiety. Uh, let's say that we're, um, uh, the trigger might be that we're a little stressed out. And then the behavior might be that, let's say we eat a cupcake or some chocolate or some ice cream. And then that reward is this brief relief that comes from feeling a little bit better. But that actually drives the cycle because it doesn't fix the root cause of mm-hmm. you know, whatever mm-hmm. triggered it. And so it just trains our brain to say, oh, eat some more ice cream, eat some more ice cream um, to feel better. Now, where mindfulness comes in is you can actually 
think of mindfulness as a, some describe this, and I love John Kabat-Zinn's description of mindfulness is about like this, you know, we're so used to doing things uh-huh. rather than actually being with what is happening, uh, that we can actually just be with what's happening. And that being can change behavior in itself. So if we, if you think of mindfulness as a substitute behavior for doing, you know, instead of eating ice cream, we simply get curious about what those cravings themselves feel like Mm -hmm. to eat ice cream, Mm -hmm. then there's a reward that comes that's intrinsic because it comes from within ourselves. We don't have to get ice cream or get anything else to feel better. We don't have to do anything. We simply rest in being with our experience. And that that reward is actually more rewarding than that brief relief that comes from the dopamine hit of anticipating the ice cream and then eating the ice cream and all of that. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Dr. Judd Brewer, psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for addiction. We're talking about curiosity and the craving mind. You know, I was sort of thinking a lot about this over the, the last week and reading your book and um, having a moment of like walking past a, a fudge shop or something and thinking, oh, fudge, that'd be good. And then sort of stopping and thinking, would it? Is that really what I want right now? And and pausing and sort of recognizing, no, that that was just a like, yeah, that would taste good, but I don't actually want that right now. Mm. So it was that pause and sort of just asking myself a couple of quick questions. And then I just kept walking. And it did. It felt good. So that's your that's a beautiful example because asking yourself a few questions, that's that's what curiosity is all about. Is like, right. oh. And it helps us kind of break that spell, that trance that says, eat some ice cream. <laughs> right. Right. And it says, oh, well, what would you get if you ate the ice cream? And what that does is help us literally hack our reward-based learning system where our we can tap into the previous time when we ate ice cream when we weren't hungry. And our brain says, you know, it's you know, it it might have some great promise, but it's you know, it might not turn out as well as you think it's going to turn out. Right. And that helps us then not only see the relatively, I'm going to say, lack of a benefit of eating ice cream because we're stressed or whatever, but it also helps highlight the joy of curiosity because we can actually flip that valence from the unpleasant feeling of craving to that pleasant feeling of curiosity itself. Like, oh, here's a craving. Oh, what does craving feel like right now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's actually where the RAIN practice comes in itself. We use this acronym, RAIN, you have to recognize, R is for recognize, so recognize the craving, for example. And then the A is to allow it to be there. So as we turn toward that feeling of craving, for example, that's exactly what curiosity helps us do. Oh, let me be with this rather than do something about it. And then the I stands for investigate. And this is really where we turn curiosity up to 11. <laughs> like, what does this feel like in my body? Hmm. You know, we jokingly, with our patients in our clinic, jokingly use this. We say, okay, we're going to teach you a mantra. And the mantra is, hmm. <laughs> because it's like, what's this craving feel like? Hmm. Well, that hmm, itself, when we get into that resonance of curiosity, so to speak, it actually feels good. So we flip that valence from an unpleasant craving to a pleasant experience of just investigating what our experience is right now. 
And then the, just to complete the acronym, that N stands for note. We can note whatever we're finding. It's like pulling out our laboratory notebook and writing down, oh, it's tightness, it's tension, it's burning, it's clenching. And what that helps us do is start to see the nature of cravings. We get to understand that cravings don't last forever. They come and go. They change. They're not fixed. Uh, and our head isn't going to explode if we don't get the ice cream. <laughs> And I say that because I've, I've literally had patients come into my office and say, Doc, my head's going to explode if I don't smoke. <laughs> and then we, we say, hmm, right. <laughs> has your right. head exploded yet? Hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and we can even right in that moment start to um, drum up the curiosity. Yeah, yeah. And then you can actually, you can watch this happen in real time with your brain imaging work, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so talk about that. We've, uh, we've identified a brain region that's part of the default mode network. It's called the uh, posterior cingulate cortex. And the default mode network was, is aptly named because it seems to be this network of brain regions that um, has to do with us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we tend to be pretty self-referential as we go through our day. Oh, I want that. I want this. I want to say this. I don't want to hear this person talking. You know, it's, it's, all, it's all about me. So that network is pretty active. We found that it correlates with uh, when we get contracted, when we get caught up in something. Um, and in fact, the, that same brain region, the posterior cingulate, gets deactivated when we're meditating. Mm -hmm. And it's also deactivated when we're curious about something. Uh, there was a recent study even, I, I don't know if it's published yet, but it showed that even when people are in awe, you know, when they're in awe, which I think is like the ultimate form of curiosity. We're right. so curious that we're, we're kind of, our head <laughs> is blown open, where we're not even there. Because our head we're is just... exploding in a good way. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So the posterior cingulate gets deactivated during all of these things, which got me really interested. Um, you know, we were looking just to see if we could correlate subjective experience with brain activity because there was this big neuroscience chasm that we were trying to cross. And we could use these real-time neuroimaging techniques where people could be in our fMRI scanner and basically map out moment to moment what their brain was doing and correlate it with their subjective experience. And that's where we started to discover that, you know, this brain re region was not, you know, not only involved in self-reference, but it seemed to be like the experiential aspect of getting caught up in, you know, oh, that I want that or I don't want that or I, I'm feeling guilty or somebody just insulted me or whatever that activation is correlated with a feeling of contraction where we're constricted. You know, like when, when we feel guilty, we, you know, it's not a very opening We quality. feel caught. Right. Yeah, we feel yeah. caught. We're stuck. Yeah. What does curiosity feel like? Uncaught. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like the opposite. So if you really distilled it down to binaries, I think of this as caught is contracted. Yeah. And curiosity is open. So you've actually talked about curiosity being naturally rewarding, and but is there science that shows that? I would say there aren't a ton of studies that I've been able to find on yeah, curiosity. Yeah. There may be some out there. We've done some preliminary experiments ourselves with our fMRI scanner, having people practice getting curious. Uh-huh. Uh, and that actually... Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. I want to know more about that. <laughs> 
So we haven't published anything. We haven't done any formal studies. But uh, anecdotally, we find that the posterior cingulate gets deactivated during curiosity. Huh. And I've also found uh, other studies that are that are supportive of that. They're not directly uh, studying curiosity. But for example, when people are, um, you know, as I mentioned, the awe study, when somebody's awestruck, their posterior cingulate gets deactivated. Uh, and even when people are kind of doing jazz improv in their, at least in their head, in an fMRI scanner, their posterior cingulate also gets deactivated. And I think ah, of interesting. I, I think of improv as a great example of curiosity because we're kind of just like waiting to see what the next note is that emerges in our consciousness. Right, and then just sort of taking it. So, is there a is there a difference between mindfulness and meditation? As practice or in our brains? Yeah, it's a great question. The I think of meditation as a technique to practice to help support mindfulness, mm-hmm. whereas we can be mindful without formally meditating. Uh, so I think of mindfulness as a large circle, and then a smaller circle within that is meditation. And you know, the many different types of meditation to help people train their minds in different ways from just helping to develop a calm abiding, you know, where we're kind of resting in awareness of a single object and developing concentration to a wide open uh, lens of awareness that's just noticing, um, for example, cravings come and go and mm-hmm. come and go. Mm-hmm. And so I really think of, you know, the meditation as a, a different types of meditation as tools to support mindfulness and to support our waking up to seeing how our minds work. Yeah, yeah. So you wrote in your book, you had two really interesting quotes, and they got me thinking. One was from the philosopher Alan Watts um, about the self which he has believed himself to be, this idea that we have of ourselves. And then from the Pali Canon, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. And I, I wonder what you think happens when we begin to think of ourselves as curious. that's when we blow our own mind. (laughs) But that's the mind expanding. Because so if I, let's clarify the terms here. If I start to identify as a curious person, Mm -hmm. then I've kind of walked down onto a concept. And I'm not actually curious at the moment, because I think I know I Mm, am curious. I am curious, right. The key here is really the experience of curiosity. And that curiosity helps us get move beyond ourselves or beyond our concepts of I am. Hmm. I heard a talk that you gave. It might have been at the Yale Divinity School um, where you talked about curiosity as the foundation of a good life. Hmm. What did you mean? Well, I think it, it really extends, you know, beyond addiction. You know, if you think of we can be addicted to our own viewpoints. We can be addicted to all sorts of things beyond the classical addictions, whether they're, you know, cigarettes or cocaine or heroin or smartphones. <laughs> <laughs> but we can really start to, you know, if we have a very fixed mindset and go about our lives thinking, I am this, um, we're, we're very much limiting ourselves. And we're limiting ourselves in terms of our relationships with others. Because if somebody says something that we don't like, we're disconnected with them, you know, or from mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. 
to being disconnected from the universe. If we just go, you know, walk down the same street every day and we're not looking around because we're like, I know what trees look like, I know what grass looks like, I know what birds look like, uh, we're going to miss out on an awe-inspired life. And so, you know, in a very real way, we can look to see how curiosity can help us start to open our eyes and see the beauty of everything and the connectedness not in some woo-woo way, but in a directly experiential way. We can explore what's it like when, I, when I'm when i not open and what's it like when I am open. And we can start to see which which life feels better. And our brains naturally start to learn, oh, curiosity, that's, you know, that's pretty good stuff. I want to keep smoking that. <laughs> right. And at the same time, it can even extend to ethical, you know, ethical conduct where we, you know, it's, instead of having some puritanical rules-based way of behaving, we can simply be curious. Huh, what's it like when I'm a jerk? Right. And what's it like when I'm kind to people? And then our brain gets to learn for itself through its own direct experience. Well, being a jerk doesn't feel very good. Uh, being kind feels pretty good. Maybe I'll do some more of that. So I would say on a very, you know, on a microcosm scale, in a moment when I'm caught up in something, oh, I want a cupcake, or even in a broad sense, when I'm looking at how do I want to live my life, we, that curiosity can drive, that, drive us in the direction of you know, living a good life along this entire spectrum. Wow, you just made this great case statement for the show. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Oh, no, really. So I have this thing that I do with all of my guests um, to um, make an analogy to curiosity with words that are written on little slips of paper that I pull out of a jar. I call my big jar of wannabe analogies. Okay. And, and I have pulled out a couple of slips. So you ready? I'm curious. Okay, good. That's a good response. Okay. <laughs> so your word is car. And um, And let's see. Uh, so do you want to go ahead or you want me to go? Uh, you start us off so I can understand how this works. Okay. All right. So I got sundial. Um, <laughs> so how is curiosity like a sundial? Hmm. I think curiosity is like a sundial because it's often um, a way of taking sort of third-party information, if you will, and learning something from it. So the sun is way, way far away from us, and there's this little, very simple mechanism in front of us, and the intersection of those two gives us new information um, that draws on stuff that's readily available but that we wouldn't otherwise necessarily have that information. So I guess that's how curiosity is like a sundial. Lovely, lovely. So how is curiosity like a car? Well, I think of it as, you know, it, it can we can hop in and go for a ride and we can visit new lands that we've never been able to uh, explore before. Nice, nice. And audience, yours is peeling an orange. How is curiosity like peeling an orange? Let us know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. So, Judd, if... Um, if people want to learn more about your work, uh, where should they be looking? I have a website called judsonbrewer.com. 
So that's probably the easiest place for folks to go. Great, great. Well, thank you for that. And, and thank you for this conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. You'll find this and all my other episodes at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on the social media at Choose to be Curious. Many thanks to my guests, Dr. Judd Brewer and to Sean Ballack for our theme music. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. Thank you.